This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm here on Zoom with my good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, the one and only Dr. G. How are you today, Ann? I'm great, Jeff. Glad to be here with you and looking forward to speaking with our guest. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got uh, got a very interesting conversation coming up today uh, with Jonathan Brill. He's the author of Rogue Waves, Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Um, And in a moment or two here, we will invite Jonathan into the conversation. Um, And I should note our third host, the one and only Mike Yusim. Yeah. He's out this week. He's out. Always suspicious. Are you... um, (laughs) Do you feel like there's any retribution to him <laughs> being out? Oh, it's tempting, but you know. <laughs> All right. But he is he is the good Mike you seem. So he is the good Mike you we'll seem. We'll probably give him a pass. All right. Well, yes. we will remind our listeners that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern, here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So, Anne, it goes without saying, right, the last 20 yeah. months or so here, a little, little unpredictable, kind of turned the world upside down. I'll say. Okay. All right. So, I, I, you know, we, I didn't want to have to relitigate that, as it were. No. I it was a the good pandemic time. seemed to come out of left field. Okay. All right. So, today's guest, Jonathan Brill, uh, says you need to know how to spot the signs of big change before it hits, so you have time to prepare. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff and Anne. It's exciting to be here. All right. Well, we are, um, we're really happy to have you here. Congratulations on the new book. Again, Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. And Jonathan, um, I'm not usually one who has a lot of title envy, uh, but it also says here in your bio that you are a global futurist. So just for our listeners who are, you know, they're spread out uh, across the, the country, across the continent. I mean, if they're walking down the street, how would they spot a global futurist? That, that is an open question. Um, <laughs> I mean, do global futurists even walk down the street? <laughs> we, use, we, use, we use air cars. Um, okay. <laughs> but, uh, so what, what do I really do? I help organizations figure out how to improve innovation under uncertainty. Uh, I, I'm not sure how I got the title. I ended up uh, taking a job at HP, uh, the computer company, printer company, because the CEO wanted to make sure that, you know, this was the, the classic, you know, company in a garage that became a global behemoth. They wanted to make sure that that wasn't going to happen to them, that some competitor wasn't going to scale out of nowhere uh, and that radical change 
wouldn't be a surprise. And uh, so they hired me to help them with their long-term plan as they re-architected the firm, uh, looking at uh, what is our location strategy, what is our product strategy, uh, how do our channels shift in the face of things like geopolitical tension in the 2020 to 2030 time period, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, my background's pretty diverse. I started off in product innovation and spent about 25 years running contract R&D um, in, in a range of fields, but mainly in, in real estate, a lot of theme park rides, uh, special venue theaters, uh, um, uh, engineered a LED sign on the top of a building in Times Square at one point. Uh, did, did a lot of work in uh, consumer electronics mixed in virtual reality, uh, machine vision types of things, so techie stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we had a third studio that really worked in the food space. So we'd help uh, large CPG, FCPG companies figure out how to re-architect their product portfolios and, and figure out how to build a new growth pipeline. Uh, so sometimes developing as many as a thousand new product concepts for, for an organization. Uh, HP came and they they asked me to come and kind of be the future guy. Um, and I thought that meant I was going to be like the product future guy. But it turns out that when you're in a large organization, as both of you know, um, you know, the products are important, but it's really all of the governance and organizational structure and, and strategic long-term investments. You know, if you're buying a piece of real estate and holding it for 20 years, right, that's going to impact what you can and cannot do far longer than, than like next week's products. And so I got really involved in those kinds of decisions. And how do you work um, in a coherent way, in a holistic way across the organization to really understand what you can and cannot do and, and, and what decisions will allow you increased optionality and potential in the future and which ones won't. So um, Jonathan, well, as a, as a brief aside, before we stay with the, the meat of this conversation, um, you and I would have a, a connection because if, if you were creating theme park rides um, in my history, I was operating them. I spent many oh, a wow. summer, many a summer, just pressing buttons, welcoming guests onto roller coasters. So, uh, so thank you for that. And um, as we like, you know, where I where I'd love to take this a little bit is as you think about a role focused on the future. How much are you trying to? to build a collective understanding um, or a, a collective worldview within an organization, um, given how many decisions have to be made with an eye towards the future? I, I think there's there there are two pieces even before that. That's critical, right? Everyone, if, if it's the, the way I think about uh, future change in organizations is uh, what I call the ABCs of resilient growth. We need to link resilience. We need to link growth, right? Mm -hmm. Today we have organizations, they're trying to operate reliably, hit their, hit their marks, so on and so forth. Uh, between uh, 2000 and 2010, literally one in 468 did every year over a five-year period, according to a study by Rita McGrath. So we've got to stop thinking about kind of the Six Sigma reliability focused uh, performance. It's a real challenge. Uh, and we need to start thinking about how do we work with change instead of trying to keep it from happening. Mm. And that's a massive shift in, in a lot of organizations. 
So we need to uh, be looking at what I call the ABCs of resilient growth, awareness. How do we get people looking outside of the organization? Between 1989 and 2019, um, three quarters of the major causes of uh, decreases in firm value were the result of external change or, or strategic uh, failures, right? Changes in mis misassessed demand and so forth. So, so the real issues we need to be focusing on are outside, and yet we have all of our people looking inside. How do we improve our operations? How do we improve our finances? Both very important things to do, right? But that's not where the risk is going to happen. And if you believe that uh, resilience uh, is, is critical and, and that volatility is increasing, you know, what we know is that, you know, you can do 6% better this year and 6% better next year and so on and so forth. But if your volatility is increasing, right, the, the, the issue is that the baseline shifts. And so you can have a Zoom year, right, where you had did 26 times growth last year, or you can have an AMC year where you take on a billion dollars and you still might go bankrupt. Right. And, and, and those are two per perfectly good companies with perfectly good strategies going into COVID that had very, very different years. Yeah. Um, and so what you need to be looking at is what's going on outside. Uh, that's the awareness piece of the ABCs. Behavior, right? How do you build the skills within your organization to understand, respond to, um, and take advantage of, you know, uh, radical change when it happens? Mm -hmm. Most organizations don't have that full uh, set of cognitive skills within their leadership teams, uh, certainly at the VP level, hopefully more at the SVP level, and, and certainly essentially at the C level. But what I've seen when I talk to large organizations is there, there are big pieces of the knowledge of, of the, the knowledge development skill set, um, the, the epistemological skill set that are missing. And that's one of the things my book's about is, is like, how do you fill those in in your organization? Or if you're an SVP and you see these blocks, you see these gaps in your organization, uh, how do you train people or train the trainer so that you aren't actually spending all of your time trying to fill those gaps so that people can operate more innovatively and independently? And then the third piece is about culture, right? How do you, um, how do you create uh, uh, a culture that makes this possible, right? It doesn't matter if people are aware. It doesn't matter if they have the skills. If every time they try and do something new, they get shot down. And so the third piece of the book um, is really about this idea of uh, uh, how do you make small changes that have big impact uh, in, in terms of how you just do simple things like give directions, uh, how you teach your people to speak in a way that they can be heard when the storm hits, right? Like, because it often, you know, it's, it's, it's the lookout that sees the, uh, uh, the iceberg first. It's not the captain, sure. um, you know, and, and the great example of what I'm talking about is actually on the Titanic, uh, where it turns out that 90 minutes after the iceberg hit, the majority of the staff, the majority of, of the, the crew didn't know that it had happened. You know, we gotta get better at communicating if we want to be able to respond. And avoid, I mean, large icebergs if you're in a ship. We all well, I, ideally uh, avoid large icebergs, but they hit, right? And so the question is, you know, how can you sidestep risk? But when, uh, when change happens, you know, as we saw with COVID, you know, everyone had to readjust, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and the, the organizations that flipped their kayaks faster, you know, they suddenly had blue ocean to operate while their competition was, was still trying to bail out their boats. And, you know, Amazon's a great, ex- you know, the classic example of this Zoom's a classic example of this, right? Like how did Microsoft not win this market? They, they had the software on everyone's machines. They had the sales force, they had the scale, they had the data centers, they had the technology. There was no reason that they didn't win aside from they didn't move fast enough. This is a mind our listeners real quick um, that this is Leadership in Action. It's Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Uh, our guest today is Jonathan Brill. Uh, he's the author of Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. He's also the Managing Director of Resilient Growth Partners and a board member at Frost & Sullivan. Um, and I want to bring your voice into the conversation here. Well, thank you, Jeff. And Jonathan, uh, really pleasure, honor to have a chance to speak with you. Um, I really like your ABCs, awareness, behavioral change, culture change, all part of building resilient growth. I want to go back to your opening comment about we need to work with change rather than resist change. And I'd like to just ask you, where does that resistance come from? Is that just simply human nature or is that part of our education? I I would say that there are massive incentives uh, within many large organizations to resist change. If you're a middle manager, how do you benefit from from flattening your organization? You know, if you're a uh, you know, especially in a slow growing area of the organization. If uh, you uh, are in finance, you know, um, accounting, you know, automation is great, right? Robotic process automation is great, but, but really maybe not for you. And so <laughs> I think we have these, these real challenges uh, as we see increasing growth pressure uh, in the economy, structural growth pressure in, in many economies. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you're, you're seeing automation and, and these potentially deflationary pressures. Um, there could be a real challenge for a lot of managers and a lot of organizations. And so the question is, how do you create the, the right soft and hard incentives to encourage the change? That's uh, great um, response. Uh, can I make it a, a little more personal to uh, Jeff and to me? Sure. How are business schools part of the problem and part of the solution? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that cackle isn't <laughs> doesn't um, bode well, Jeff. <laughs> well, I, I think actually uh, 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 y'all do a, a pretty good job at, at your school and, and you see you know, really great leadership training coming out, uh, you know, and obviously your uh, high profile uh, uh, leadership trainers and, 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 and organizational people like Angela and, and, and Adam Grant, uh, really actually pushing this conversation about how do we create more cooperative organizations? How do we, you know, where is the performance benefit? And it, and it really is there, you know, and, and a lot of times, the uh, the way we change, the way we think about coordination uh, can be improved. You know, one of the things Adam likes to do is uh, put executives in a room who don't know each other and give each of them a giant, you know, sticky note, you know, post-it note, you know, 
two foot by three foot thing, stick it up on the wall and write down what they need and then have everyone else walk around the room and, and write how they can help. And then all of a sudden you get your finance people, your operations people, your, your sales people, so on and so forth, you know, coordinating on low effort, high opportunity issues within the organization, just removing red tape. And so when we think about how to innovate faster, if, when we think about how to manage, uh, how to become more resilient, um, you know, some of it is yes, you know, restructuring firms, uh, yes, thinking about sales channels, yes, thinking about business models, but a lot of it is like just the simple stuff about removing, uh, removing uh, the disconnects between silos and organizations. And so I think while business schools might not have done this as well in the past, I think they're getting better at it. Uh, the second thing that I think a lot about, and this is kind of our broccoli moment for the day, uh, is, is what's called epistemology, the, the study of how we know what we know. And there are five major skill sets uh, that you teach in business schools, uh, but because we're so silver bullet focused, you know, especially in executive programs, you know, we don't teach the the underlying thing, and so it doesn't this knowledge doesn't necessarily transfer between problems for uh, for for the student. And so there are five major skill sets, right? One is uh, reality testing, right? How do you use inductive, deductive, uh, and abductive methods of thinking of reasoning to to figure out what's going on? Because the thing we can know is that the world's moving faster. So our assumptions are probably wrong. We've got to make sure if we're projecting into the future that we we're, we're projecting from the right baseline. Uh, some people get this in an undergraduate training. So if you're in a quantitative social sciences uh, field, the second is around uh, what's called Bayesian reasoning, which is really how do you use stacked probabilities and, and systems design, systems control theory to start to understand not just what things are correlated to each other, but if there's causality between them as, as, as they move, as, as you project into the future, which is kind of a geeky thing to talk about, but it's how uh, things like your search engine work. You know, it's how things, how, how a lot of AI works. Um, and it is, it's, a, it's, it's, how, it's how weather services uh, do weather forecasts. Like it, it, this is around almost everything in our lives. And we've got to make sure that people have those baselines. Um, we've got to make sure that people can generate the range of possible futures. Like when you think about uh, an English major, right? They're, they're, they're taught how to think about worlds that don't exist, how to create them. Well, if you're a mechanical engineer, that's, that's not necessarily a skill set that you deal with. You, you deal with the world of Newtonian physics and it always exists. Um, and so we've got we to train that into our organizations. So the next piece is really what I call uncoupling threats from opportunities. And this is something that mechanical engineers turn out to be like really well-trained in. Uh, and that's why many of them end up being project managers. And the, the question here is, you know, if you have a decision tree you know, and, and you say, okay, we've got, the, we've generated this range of possible futures. We've got this great outcome and we've got the one where the world ends. Um, what are the decisions? What are the, 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 the key choice points that would result in one or the other? And then what are the small changes in process that we can make, uh, small tweaks in process uh, that we can make to make sure that we end up with something acceptable and 
maximize the probability of the best outcome and, and eliminate the probability of the bad one. Mechies are really good at that. Um, uh, English majors, not so much. Uh, and then, you know, the, the last piece is really about experimentation. So uh, a lot of organizations, uh, a lot of what we do in the sciences uh, and, and in mechanical engineering, you know, is, is, uh, serial experimentation. We, we do one thing, we make it better, we make it better, we make it better, we make it better, we make it better. And that's important. But I think there's another way of looking at this that you see in pharma, uh, that you see uh, in, in financial engineering, which is you build a portfolio of investments, each with a different risk profile, each with a different payoff timeline. And so if you do it right, no matter what you do, you end up in a good enough place, no matter which experiments succeed uh, or which experiments fail. And that's a skill set. Now, when we think about our teams, when we think about our organizations, the interesting thing is all of us think we know how to project the future. We know how to, how, how to see what's next because we're visionaries. What we don't realize is we live in a fishbowl, right? We live in our own water. And, and we don't recognize that the guy in the next fishbowl over probably has a different combination of the skill set. And so what you really want to be doing is a training this into your organization, but b making sure that uh, your teams have this full combination of skills within them. If you want them to look forward into the future, because otherwise, you know, you have blind spots that you don't even know. Yeah. Jonathan, great. I really, I love that we're talking about epistemology and <laughs> the study of how we know what we know. <laughs> Jeff, I'm going to hand back, hand back to you. <laughs> All right. And uh, Jonathan, in the time we have before the break, um, I, I'd love to start to shift the conversation a little bit for, for our listeners. If if they're sitting back and they're understanding, all right, there are ways that we can work and there, there are skills and abilities that we can you know, hire for, build in to our organizations that will help us um, with a resilient growth strategy. I'd love to now dig in a little further, if we can, to awareness and behavior and culture um, and, and maybe start with awareness. I mean, this, this um, I'm sure is a gross oversimplification, but it seems to me there's uh, a lot of things to be aware of in the world around us, right? And so how would you encourage, you know, an executive team, um, a new organization to just start to expand their awareness from, you know, the vantage point that they've been in for a while? How, how do you take the first steps towards understanding some of these different um, factors and trends? That's a, a great question. Uh, when I was at HP over uh, several years, we did about $15 million of research to understand what you can and can't know uh, about the next decade. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that there are 10 major trackable trends uh, that we, there's a chapter about it in the book. Um, and so that's one, one good place. Uh, the, the second is, you know, starting to have people moving outside of their comfort zones, right? And moving outside of their locations. One of the things they used to do, you know, was bring executives to, to China and just say, hey, like, <laughs> here, here's what people say is going on in the news. Here's what's actually going on and giving them those hands-on experiences. Like, you can't know the future from, you know, 
from NBC. You have to know mm. the future from the ground. And so that's that's one thing. It's just recognizing that we need to be out there uh, and that that time out touching the world is actually incredibly valuable, even though, you know, it's hard to account for. If you, if you don't do that, you, you, you start looking insular. The second uh, real thing to do is uh, we, we have, like I said, we've got these 10 trends uh, in the book. And, you know, I think I know what's going to happen one, three, five, seven, ten 10 years from now. But what we discovered uh, from COVID is that the future tends to accelerate or decelerate in really mm -hmm. interesting ways. We thought digital transformation was going to take five years. It turns out that it took five weeks. Um, you know, and, and this is a fascinating thing to think about. What happens if these things that are on one time horizon end up shifting? Right. Right. How does that impact our business? Uh, when we talk about rogue ways, this is a great place to, to start thinking about it. Uh, you know, you've heard of black swan events, right? These yep. incalculable risks that pop out of nowhere. Well, it, it turns out that that's not normally what happens. Uh, you know, 2008 wasn't an incalculable risk. Uh, at HP, we were tracking pandemics. This was a highly dynamic risk. Uh, and yet, organizations were looking at this thing and saying, hey, you know, like it's a one in a hundred event. What they failed to notice was we were just getting better at stopping one in a hundred events that were happening far more frequently. One was going to break through and we didn't think about what was the domino effect afterward. Um, and so it's just starting to take a look at, you know, 10 major trends that you think are going to shape the future and what happens to your finances, your operations, your external environment and your strategy if they overlap in un unlikely ways uh, to create rogue waves. And that's what happens in the deep. The, mathematically, the same thing happens. Uh, the same kind of models work in the deep ocean where uh, you, you look at, you know, one or 10 or 12, you know, overlapping waves colliding to create something that was manageable individually, but suddenly is unmanageable when you put all of them together in the same time and the same place, like 2008, like COVID, uh, like many other events. And we look at these as edge cases, you know, but they're really the main case. This is the fascinating thing. Uh, in the 20th century, we saw about four major business disruptions a year in the United States. If we think that the world's moving faster, that there are more rich people doing more crazy things, the number of disruptions is going to increase. And so we need to stop looking at the world from the perspective of uh, rogueways being an edge case to realizing that they're the main case. In fact, in the 20th century, we spent about 45% of our time as managers bailing out of them. <laughs> if you believe, like I said, that things are getting more volatile, expect that this is going to be the main case for the next decade. <laughs> all right, Jonathan. Well, yeah, that is, yeah. I mean, that, that should be all the enticing that we need. And why don't I toss the, toss the baton and the baton? I'm actually I'm tossing it. Okay, uh, I got it. Yeah, <laughs> got it. it right out of the air. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Jonathan, uh, from my perspective, you've done a wonderful job of providing us with some foundational understanding. You've talked about how we need to embrace change rather than resist it. You've talked about awareness, behavioral change, culture, all to build resilient growth. I'd like to dig in a little bit 
into behavioral change and to think practically from the point of view of our audience leaders, managers out there, what are concrete steps that people can take to make the kinds of behavioral changes that you're recommending? I, I think there's, you know, this require this isn't stuff that you can necessarily figure out on your own. It's all stuff that's obvious once you know it. Um, you know, it's, it's uncommon common sense. Uh, and so one of the things that I like to do when, you know, before we talked about this idea of reality testing and uh, right. epistemology, right. That there are, there are four major ways of reasoning uh, and, and uh, most of us only learn, you know, one or two or three, everything else builds on that. Uh, so the first thing to do is, is ask yourself uh, when you look at your people, you know, who has really strong uh, deductive skills, right? Like maybe as a lawyer, lawyers have really strong deductive skills, right? Because they work with a universe of existing information and they assume that's the entire universe. And then they make, they make the argument for the truth. This is the thing that must be true. Uh, the second approach is what's called inductive reasoning. So this is what a lot of scientists do. Given all of the data that's available, this is the most likely thing. Right. So if you have finance people, right, this is what you teach them how to do financial models. You build up, you know, you you, you look at things in, in total uh, and, and then you say, you know, we're going to make three billion dollars next year. Uh, the third approach is called abductive reasoning. And uh, you don't see a lot of this in uh, the business school um, academy. Um, but the question here to really ask is what one thing, if it came to light, or if a fact turned out to be untrue, would change my opinion? Or what combination of things? So this is what's called a counterfactual argument. Uh, or or it's, it's very close if you're in mathematics person to something called conjecture. And uh, this is what someone, this is what Sherlock Holmes did, you know, uh, in, in the Sherlock Holmes stories. This is, this is how you, how you have new ideas. And so this is the thing that if you're an artist or I was trained as, as a designer, this is what you deal with all the time is, is how do you, assuming that, that many of your assumptions are going to be wrong, how do you get to the best outcome? Uh, and then the last piece is about Bayesian reasoning. And uh, this is really a, a technique that came to the fore, uh, you know, in the mid-1980s when a, a guy named, a statistician named Judea Pearl uh, said, hey, you know, you can take uh, this control systems theory that we've been working on in business schools. There was this guy, Jay Forrester, who was really big on this uh, at, at the Sloan School. Uh, and we can, we can start stacking probabilities on top of uh, these things. And this is a thing that, you know, often like economists learn how to do, like how to build complex systems models and, 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 and pressure test them, see what, you know, what, how, what, you know, three steps back might impact uh, my profitability, you know, three steps forward. And uh, it's a thing we're seeing uh, as we get more data centric in our organizations, uh, becoming more and more important. These techniques were very hard years ago because you had to have great statistical skills. The data wasn't available. Uh, the computational power wasn't available. You know, but this year uh, we're starting to see, we're doing things like climate modeling at the one kilometer perspective, 
you know, the three kilometer perspective. Um, and so we're, we're for the first time, like on a global basis, having high quality data, the ability to process that data uh, and, and do it at a scale that you can actually say, hey, what's the economic impact of climate change in 25, you know, 2050, uh, you know, on this piece of coastline? That wasn't possible five years ago and still requires supercomputers. But I'm guessing that you don't need to crunch every kilometer of the planet uh, to, to crunch your company either. Um, yeah. so these skills are becoming much more practical. And when you take a look at a company like Amazon, like why were they so responsive in the face of COVID? It's because they had a perfect systems model of their organizations. They, outside of the Fed, they believe they hire more uh, PhD level economists uh, than everybody else. Jonathan, I'm sorry to jump in, step on the uh, end of your sentence, but if I were to distill what you're what you're saying, what I'm what I'm hearing is as a manager or as a leader in an organization, look around and ask yourself who who thinks like a lawyer, who thinks like a scientist, who thinks like an English major and who thinks like an economist. That's would that really be would that be a fair summary of what you've said? That's a really great way of thinking about it. Yeah, and and how do you help them cross pollinate those skills? I, I love that uh, that that distillation. Okay, yeah, and then that would be the next question. So once you let's say you look at your your team, um, we can make it that micro, and you have individuals who think this way. And of course, as you said earlier in the hour. We're all in our own little fishbowl and we think everybody thinks the way that we think, but they don't. <laughs> the person next to us is thinking in an entirely different way. So how do we begin to have them um, discover each other's ways of thinking and the ways in which that can ben benefit the team and also the organization? I, I think first by creating that awareness, like most people aren't this is this is a big idea for a lot of people that the other people literally are trained to think differently and that results in different outcomes in, in literally seeing different things in the world like this isn't an accident and you can learn how to think in these other ways um you know so i'm sure that you have your your critical thinking course um uh you know, uh, you know, and, and kids go through this and, and they, 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 you, you touch on all of these things probably, mm -hmm. probably, but do they walk out of that, you know, with the knowledge that they need to find people with these other skill sets and the, the, the with enough of a, a, um, a pigeon, enough of a patois mm -hmm. that, uh, they can actually have a real conversation. Uh, one woman who works in a major research and development firm uh, or um, a lab, uh, she was an English major and she's kept saying this thing. And I can't talk about what it was, unfortunately, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, about about their human resources. And she said, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. And she goes, she's been saying for three years to the lab chief, this is a problem. She reads the book and she realizes this guy has a PhD in artificial intelligence. He does Bayesian reasoning, right? Mm -hmm. And she's been talking to him like an English major. So she, just, <laughs> so she just shifts the perspective and, and draws a little picture, uh, you know, with nodes and links and the way that 
Bayesians do or design thinkers, systems thinkers do. Uh, and all of a sudden he's like, of course, we need to change the way we do all of our human resources uh, and learning and development training. Snap of a finger. And all you have to do often yeah. is learn to talk different. You know, yeah. like when I, I, I did my business training at Stanford and it was really stunning. Like, I don't know that I changed the way I think profoundly, but I learned how to talk different. And all of a sudden, these things that were hard mm-hmm. became easy. Yeah. Yeah. Really, I, at heart, in some ways, I think, Jonathan, you're talking about cross cultural communication. <laughs> and really, you know, how how do we how do we know even how we talk <laughs> and how do we talk with others who are coming yeah. from a whole different foundation? And the and the the beauty of it is, at least in this con- context right here, we're all speaking English and assume that we all understand what we're saying. But in fact, we're operating from very, very different uh, foundation foundation points. And I'll hand the baton back to Jeff in just a second. But you have hit on a hobby horse of mine uh, because I I work primarily, not exclusively, but primarily with undergraduates. And I'm very interested in making the most of their entire university experience. Mm -hmm. They are business majors from the get-go. They come in as first-year students as freshmen, and their education is entwined with their liberal arts education. But they tend to think of the liberal arts as over there and business is over here and miss the opportunity to understand how the two enhance and reinforce each other and that there are elements of their business education that actually have quite a a dose of the liberal arts in them. (laughs) And there are elements of their liberal arts education that have um, aspects of the business education. So it's not quite so separated as they think, (laughs) but getting them to understand that is a challenge. But now you're helping me understand that it's a question of language and cross-cultural communication. All right. So since this interview isn't about me, let me hand it back to Jeff <laughs> to refocus. And I'm, I'm only accepting tossed batons right now. Oh, okay. I'm tossing the baton back to you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, all right. Well, this is Leadership in Action, uh, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. Uh, I'm here and I'm, I'm talking with Ann Greenhall. And Jonathan Brill. How about that? Uh, it is, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about Anne's reflections on life and Jonathan's uh, great new book, Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Uh, and I mean, I, I really appreciated the last 10 minutes of, of this conversation. And it, it had me thinking, um, and maybe this pulls us a little bit into the, the culture part of yeah. the ABC framework that you laid out, Jonathan, thinking about awareness and behaviors and, and culture. Um, I'm wondering about the role of leaders in organizations who are really trying to um, anticipate and work with the rogue waves as you've identified them. Um, and, and specifically, the role of a leader as it 
relates to risk and the the organization's orientation towards risk. So, you know, how, how do you think about it? How would you coach organizational leaders to think about how to interact with risk? So I think the first thing is to recognize that the risk is a measure of volatility, not of threat, right? More uh, billionaires are minted in financial downturns. There was a 13% increase last year uh, and 50% uh, more uh, companies enter the Fortune 100 during financial downturns. This is when the opportunity occurs. Like if you think back to Michael Porter, right? And like classical strategy, mm -hmm. you know, he talks about, you know, buyer power, supplier power, you know, entrance, you know, substitutions. And this is all great until, you know, the rogue wave hits and the entire playing field, uh, the entire game board is, is knocked off the table. That's when your opportunity is for radical growth. In a world where we're seeing slowing structural growth in much of the world because of changing uh, consumer demand, because more people are getting older uh, and, and, and taxes are going to have to come from somewhere and so on and so forth. Your real opportunity over this decade is going to be finding those moments of disruption and using them as levers for growth. Right. It's a shift in perspective. But the history is there to support it. The statistics are there to support it. And we've got to start looking at volatility as opportunity. Uh, the second piece to, to really think about is, okay, well, how do you do that? Like when, you know, when, when waters come in over the side of the ship, right? Like um, that's not the time to teach your people to be more innovative and autonomous, right? You don't want to take up big wave surfing when the big wave hits. It's a terrible idea. What you want to be doing is doing it more. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, what are some things that we know about uh, that we've certainly learned in the last year? One, people are overwhelmed. Two, uh, if you if your people don't have enough contextual awareness and they don't have the skills to make decisions uh, and you have to do it, you're the blocker because more decisions, more holes need to be patched than you have time for. And so the real thing to be thinking about is how do you increase your, your ability to trust your people because you've increased their, 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 their cognitive skills, like we were talking about earlier, right? And how do you change, improve communication skills so that you don't need to micromanage and so that they can say what they need and be heard? Right. Even the intern, if they see the iceberg, that information can get to the C-suite. And there are two there, there are two real things they think are important here. One is how do we give direction? And I'm going to let you in on a secret. Um, I'm, a, I'm a terrible people manager. Uh, and I had I had this guy. Uh, who worked for me and he was big strapping uh, ex special forces officer. He was, you know, this is not a guy you want to piss off. And it's also a guy who was, you know, sneaking over the DMZ in North Korea every night for five years, right? Like if he did something wrong, it was going to be an international incident. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you know, it was going to be an issue. And, and so he, I'm terrible giving directions. And he turns to me and he's like, here's how, if I'm going to continue to work for you as my, as your head of strategy, here's how you are going to tell me what to do. It's really, really simple. It's really simple. It's one of those things we were talking about uncommon, common knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. One, what do we know about the context? What do we not know? And what do we think is likely to change or be untrue? Two, what are the objectives? What are the overall objectives? And what are my objectives for you? Three, how much and how little risk do I want you to take? This is really important because we often talk about how much risk I want you to take, what what are the right level if you're in finance or whatnot. But what we also wanna say is like, how little risk am I gonna accept? Like I will fire you for not taking enough risk, for not failing enough. It's a really important message to create those risk bands. Mm -hmm. The next piece is, I don't know if you've, you've been a leader, I've been a leader. You know, you, you, you say half thought out stuff and you run away for three weeks or three months and you come back and you're like, why did nothing happen? Well, nothing happened because you didn't say what to do if your half thought out idea was wrong, right? Who's in charge and who makes decisions? Really simple thing. Uh, and then the last piece is if everything goes haywire, everything goes berserk, I don't come back. Who do you call and what do you do next? If you just give people that information when you give directions and it takes a little practice to get good at it, you remove almost all of the reasons that people can't innovate on your behalf. They have all of the information to make good decisions. The second thing, and I think this is really critical, is you know, as we move faster, as we flatten our organizations, we need to build higher quality executive communications, lower in the company so that people can say things in ways that they're heard. That doesn't mean that you're not responsible as a leader for hearing, but one of the major reasons things don't happen is that the, the person, the person over here doesn't know how to speak the patois of the person over here. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so how do you do that? And I I think there are, there are, there are four things you need to teach. And I think I call it the lead model. Uh, which is what's, what's my logic, right? Like, I don't know, you know, I don't know much about your thing, but, but what's my logic? Why, why do I think this is what's going on or the right thing to do? Second is empathy. Once again, you know, I'm the intern, you're the CEO. I don't really understand your job, but here's what I think is important to you right now. Um, could you tell me more? Mm-hmm. And that's a great opportunity for knowledge transfer. Right. To to help everybody in the organization understand the structure of the organization. The last is authority. Right. Often, you know, people who have to make decisions or have insights, they don't have positional authority. And so the question is, you know, what other thing have I done that suggests I might be the right person to bring this insight to you right now? Right. Maybe it was a different thing that happened when I was, uh, 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 you know, a babysitter and it just feels a little like this or there, there was a project we worked on once where it was a data computer data center and uh, uh we were buying this huge boiler this million dollar piece of equipment and uh to replace something because we weren't getting enough hot water 
And I thought back to this apartment building that I used to live in. And what we discovered was there was this little $6 part that just needed to be replaced to, to get more heat into the boiler, right? It wasn't a million dollar problem, but that came from, you know, helping to maintain a hundred year old building, you know, different context. Uh, and then the last piece is about deadlines, right? How long do we have to make a decision? We can run around in circles for as long as we want until Wednesday. And then the <laughs> other <laughs> We're good at that. <laughs> that last one really hits circles. home. As someone who works in a university environment, that last one, the value of the big D deadline uh, really hits home for us there. You know, and, and, and the first three really, you know, they, they come from they're, they're they come from Aristotle originally, right? You have logos, ethos, yep. and uh, the other, whatever the other Greek one is. Um, but, <laughs> but Aristotle was a philosopher, and so you need a deadline. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> yeah. So um, amazingly, we we are right at the uh, top of the hour here, and yeah. um, we're going to do a. a kind of wrap up ritual here, Jonathan, um, a very fast after action review. So I'm going to start with Anne, but then I'm going to come over to you before I wrap it up. Um, and, and in about 20 or 30 seconds, um, please, Anne, give us a, give us a, a sense of what you're taking with you. Um, what, what's the headline for you from the conversation we just had here today? All right. Thank you, Jeff. All right. My headline is uh, work with change rather than resist it. And think of risk not as a threat. Think of risk as volatility and opportunity. All right. And Jonathan, what do you want to leave our, our listeners with today? The single best thing you can do, the reason you want to consider the ABCs of resilient growth is that they help you figure out uh, what strategy to use before you play the game. You know, at the end of the day, you know, one of the number one decision-making mistakes I see is that we use the strategies, we use the, the techniques, the processes we've used before without considering that our poker face, it's not going to work at the roulette table. Very good. Awesome. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I think for me, I, I've, one of the things I really appreciate this about this book, Jonathan, is how clearly you've laid out some some frameworks and some ways of thinking. So people who want to access this kind of a perspective, this sort of a future driven approach um, have some handholds, right? And, the, and they have a language around it. Um, so whether it's the ABC framework or the, the lead framework that you just laid out there, I think it gives, uh, gives everybody a way to start to engage in building awareness, um, changing behaviors, you know, focusing on culture, this ABC framework that you've talked about. And, you know, even more than that, um, the advice don't take up big wave surfing um, as the big wave hits. Um, now's the time to build this kind of capability. So Jonathan, I want to say thank you to you for uh, joining us today. Congratulations on the new book. Again, Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. I want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And if you have a question about something you heard on today's show, please email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. 
A special thank you to our guest, Jonathan Brill, and to Ann Greenhall for joining me here today. Uh, and I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, our uh, eternal friend, Dana Cash. And I'm Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 